Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rulemakers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Keeping score in the boardroom off of a special that gears to mega events. We dealt with football last week, questioned where the NFL is going. And now, how about Game 7 of the series? It gives us a platform between the Cubs and the Indians. 176 years of cumulative futility comes to an end. But baseball, if it's on trial, I argue it passes the test, and we'll cover that in our baseball special with a Met fan, which I guess you could consider him trying to recover from a year of... I don't think the Mets made the playoffs this year. We'll talk about it a little bit. The worldwide universal executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. How are you? Did the Mets make the playoffs? The Mets did make the playoffs. They were eliminated in the wild card game by the Giants, um, but... I'll, I'll leave that petty insult aside for now um, because I am happy to be talking about baseball. Last week's show on the NFL, we talked about a, a league under siege on so many fronts, though not financial yet. And you look at baseball, and baseball is the entirely opposite script. I mean, they, we've had a, a, a World Series that not only had great baseball, but a romantic fairy tale quality to it uh, on both sides, people watching it. Bill Murray's there. Eddie Vedder's there. You don't get better. The 92-year-old, the 94-year-old survivor from the last Cleveland World Series champion was in the stands a couple of nights ago. I mean, this is great stuff. It's infinitely watchable. And uh, there's not a lot of controversy around it. It's just baseball, and it's great. Uh, and it just shows you how things break right and things break cyclically because um, you don't see it in the NBA anymore and you don't see it, certainly don't see it in the NHL and you, and the NFL, again, where that had been the repository of all this goodwill in the past decade or so uh, is kind of a little bit on the skid. So it's it's fun to watch. It's, it's great and the economies are expanding and you can see it across the league and you're going to see it across the entire enterprise of baseball. The nature of the business pieces of baseball are, are the television piece and the player labor piece. We'll get to that. But the overall value, by the way, just a couple of numbers to, to chew around with. $1.3 billion. That's the average value of a baseball team, by the way, up 59% in the last two years. If it were a stock, it would be worth over $36 billion, which is higher than most stocks in the stock exchange. 15 teams worth over a billion versus five in 2014. Here's another number, which is really important. 26 uh, playoff teams in the last five years, the most in baseball history, and 15 years without a repeat World Series champion again this year as well. So parity is good. The value is good. Here's the final number. 1,250, which is the one-seat, all-you-can-eat pizza and wings, plus beer, wine, and by the way, they threw in a bottle of Grey Goose. That was at HVAC Pub outside of Wrigley Field to watch games four and five, and by the way, you don't get inside. Wait, 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 wait. What self-respecting Chicago sports fan would drink wine? Yeah, I know. Well, that's why. But, would but Ditka, they give you, they would give you a Ditka straw. They give you wine that. and a oh, straw. Okay. Fair and enough. And the bottom line is those numbers are amazing. And by the way, you don't get in. 
You don't even get to watch Wrigley Field. You get to watch a television set um, in the bar. So, that, you know, Chicago's crazy. Cleveland's crazy. Value of 27, the Indians worth about $800 million versus the Cubs, who were number five at $2.2 billion. The bottom line is both teams win, as do baseball. So uh, give, me, give me your perspective on all that. I, I think baseball wins far more than both teams. You know, because, again, we talk about values of the franchises, but it's a lot like Japanese real estate. They don't change hands very often, so values get inflated when there is eventually a sale, right? Um, and and that, that's fine, and the, the revenues naturally increase because the deals on TV get bigger and the like. But, but the real winner, I think, is, again, we've talked about this before, it's not the game, and, and you know, in, especially around a World Series or a Super Bowl, um, it's what you breathe in. What gets absorbed via social penetration and pop culture, celebrity fans, whatever you want to measure by, it's going to be far greater for Major League Baseball. And especially because you see the promotions now during the game for the World Baseball, what is it, the World Baseball Classic or the World Baseball Championship? Which is always, I've always enjoyed watching, especially when it's in Latin America, you get these great crowds. You, you, You start to see that and that becomes an extension and you start to see the little league promotions and and that becomes an extension and the gear obviously and the merch is an extension and you don't mind it you you happily spend the money or you happily engage because you don't have to feel terrible about yourself afterward i think for the game of baseball the tv game and the distribution game uh is working to its advantage now regional sports networks can do very very well um the national tv deals are still pretty lucrative and, you know, the, the, the enterprises and the arbitrage of the salary, you know, of the, the luxury tax and, and the like, the good teams have worked it out. And you could see teams moving in cycles. You know, you saw the Marlins a few years ago. Your Marlins, I well, believe. Well, my, my Marlins, but I'm a Cub fan, so we'll, we'll, we'll defer to that. But you live in Marlins country. Yeah, Marlins country. And, okay, so, so your Marlins built a new stadium, spent out the yin-yang for talent, and then didn't go anywhere a couple of years ago. Um, and that's kind of an investment, and that's kind of a venture capital investment in some sense. And you look at the Mets, who are sitting on possibly, and you and I talked about this in the offseason, are sitting on the potential of a billion-dollar pitching staff if you look at um, Zach Granke's contract, right? So teams are learning the new economy, their way around the new economic landscape, and I think it's resulting in teams having you know, longer windows of possibly being successful, and shorter windows on rebuilding because they understand how to do it. And, and that's valuable to the entire enterprise because it makes the game competitive. It gives the game characters. It's hard not to watch the Cubs and not love those guys because they're so young and bright-eyed and fresh-faced that they're just a fun team to watch. And the Indians, you don't know any of them, and they're great. <laughs> so, so, that's, you know, so that's kind of but, – but, but that doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, right. It- you know, it happens through shrewd, shrewd trading, smart free agent spending – Good trade deadline management, understanding the value of a of a rental player, uh, and 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 letting that wash out a little bit, and that's kind of interesting. Well, and, and as the Yankees and Cardinals and uh, Angels and, and Phillies mm. can attest, those are by the way three of the teams in the top ten as far as worth and and payrolls that didn't make the playoffs. Money is great, but but money doesn't always buy you happiness. And the comment about parity, I always like money because it gives you the opportunity to succeed. It doesn't automatically guarantee success. But let's get back to TV for a minute, and then we'll get back to players. On the television side, uh, $8 billion in guaranteed revenue contracts, and, and clearly they, baseball folks are creating a business that's transferable out of advanced media. Their social media 
dollars, MLBAM, their their advanced media company, would be a $10 billion value, again, if it were a stock. And it's so good that hockey has entered into an agreement with baseball that they would use the social media infrastructure of baseball to kind of help them in it. And so the bottom line of all of this is it's getting younger. People understand how valuable it is to mix the national deals and the local deals. And so, you know, there, there are some blips in, in the road. The Yankees clearly with a $3.4 billion deal locally, that's where they can get a lot of their money. The Cubs big local deal. The Braves, big local deal. Dodgers are tied up in a DirecTV suit with the Justice Department that's just starting, so we'll see how that all works out. It's going to be a long lawsuit, by the way, with a lot of lawyers, but it is a deal that people want to spend money on. I think that's the bottom line, that baseball is attractive to corporate sponsors, to new media, and to old media as well. So, Baseball's getting younger, notwithstanding the fact that you're old and I'm older. Baseball's getting younger. <laughs> Baseball, and, and you look at the technology. You look at MLB, that advanced media division you, you talked about. I remember when that was starting out. I was Web 1.0 in, in media, and, and I remember when that, that started. And to think that it's gone from what could have been a boutique product built for baseball fans to essentially a piece of core infrastructure in the sports commerce world. Um, you know, I think there was a, a story today, you and I talked about a little bit uh, via email that, you know, Discovery, the, you know, one of the great media companies on the planet, has now formed a joint venture with them, with, with BAM Tech, I think they call it, to stream sports across Europe, right? Now that becomes a piece of infrastructure, and we talked in the past about networks investing in buying rights to international and global sports. They're kind of value plays because the rights aren't exorbitant or extortionate yet. Um, and this gives them technology to leverage them instantly across platform, right? And that, that makes that quickly exponentially more valuable than its core asset. And so that, when you look at what, how shrewd Major League Baseball was about investing in technology, that, that's a vital, vital thing. And I don't know if all the leagues had the foresight to do that, you know? It's the same. It's the same foresight as the NHL making a big deal out of the Winter Classic. Yeah, you know that that's a great marquee thing, but that is not uh, scalable, as we say in the internet economy, right? It's not scalable. The MLB, the the BAM platform, is now scalable. So, <laughs> you know, it could live. It has one bastion that could live through the ups and downs of actual baseball because it's making money on other sports. Well, and the other deal of this, which is I think really as important as well, is everybody learns from everybody else. So. World Cup of Hockey is the next step on the NHL side to try to get a regular annuity. But where do they get it from? They got it from the World Baseball Classic, which you just talked about, the international deal with Discovery and what they just did in Europe. Baseball is a big deal. Australia, Panama, South America, Europe, not so much. So what do they do? They start streaming and they figure out how to capture even more folks. The All-Star Game, we know, 170 countries and 13 languages, but there's more to be done internationally. You were just over in London. Was the baseball noise deafening, or was there something to build on? I, di I didn't sense anything to build on. And again, I was fixated a little bit on the NFL game there, and I wasn't thinking baseball per se. But I will tell you that you know the good thing about baseball is that it's, its global reach is, is far more organic uh, only hockey is probably more organic globally. You know, forcing American football on, on Europeans isn't, is a tall order to make it a real thing commercially. I think baseball might be a tough sell, too, on the continent. But I think, you know, if you look at Latin America and you look at Asia and, you know, that's where the world is growing and that's where the economies are growing, 
you have a nice core base that you don't have to work too hard to get interested. There are cult figures and cult heroes. In you know they don't need a Michael Jordan for Asian baseball because they have Sadahara O. They don't need uh, Michael Jordan for Latin American baseball because you have a litany from Juan Marichal through you know uh, Jonas Cespedes. Uh, you know and you get more of that as Cuba and and, and the U.S. Uh, tighten up. So it, it, it's an organic global play. Baseball has room to go. And there's even, you know, the, the joy of baseball is that, and we'll talk about this in your minor league segment, I think, but, you know, the joy of baseball is that community stadiums, smaller cities can sustain a good minor league team and without it being a stretch and with a real economy, a micro economy built around that. Yeah. Let, let, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's get to players first. Labor peace. Who'd have thought in the 70s and 80s where work stoppages were the order of the day in baseball, that baseball now has the longest labor piece of any of the leagues. Why? I didn't realize that. Well, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's a big deal, right? And everybody's making money. 127 major league players earning $10 million or more a year. Uh, I don't even know if you earned more than $10 million a year. Not last year. Yeah. Okay. Well, but you had a bad year last year. You, you hit under 200. <laughs> but, but I guess the bottom line is more people making money, the easier it is to get together. Uh, Rob Manfred and the guys on the labor side seem to understand business is first and vitriol and animosity and rhetoric is second. Well, well, tell me, tell me this, though. Let's ask a real financial question here. The big TV deals have been done. The big regional sports networks have been established. If there's not big growth in the next round uh, of that spoke in the wheel, will there be agitating? Will there be labor agitating? Because the, the luxury tax may not move. Um, you know, it, will there be the same or only a smaller incremental pot of money to spend? And will that, will the union be expecting more? Yeah, and here's my big concern, the disparity. So the Rays payroll at the beginning of the season was 57 million bucks. The Yankees, 223, they did nothing with theirs. But, you know, when, when you have 57 million bucks to spend and you're in June and you're going nowhere, you can point to some of the teams like the Oakland A's, but you're generally destined for a terrible summer. And so if you have significant dollars and the salaries going up about 25 to 30 percent a year, your expectations are high. And while the national TV deals, I agree with you, are high and the bounty is great, do you get a 20 to 30 percent growth in the business because the internet deals generate a lot more money? I don't know. The international generates more money? I don't know. We'll have to see. By and large, digital deals don't generate the kind of money unless you have a big player. If if Apple, you know, Facebook or Google or Twitter, I guess maybe Twitter gets acquired by a bigger company. If they come in and want to raise the stakes on digital, great. But I mean, their whole equation is, you know, cost effective content. And, you know, there may be some I'd like to see how the NFL ends up on Yahoo and how the viewership numbers go. But it, it's kind of an interesting it's an interesting inflection point for baseball, you know, not as, again, not dire uh, societally, but interesting in how they get used to if they go back to a baseline, if it reverts back to a baseline for a, a handful of teams. The only thing that worries me is the potential of another drug scandal. Yeah. Um, another PED scandal. And, I, you know, you don't know what, pe what we don't know, but there doesn't seem to be any big statistical outliers that would indicate that. But that could be an issue or an issue of, like, you know, income inequality. We talk about it in the election and we talk about it in financial journalism. Is this income inequality between teams going to mean a different 
kind of competitive take. I mean, luckily we've had the Royals and the Pirates and, and teams that had been on the bottom rung kind of win and be successful in the past five, six years. I'd like to see that continue. So those are two things that, that kind of hang over baseball, I think. I agree. Then we'll shift to minor leagues. I do think that the emphasis on that one number I did earlier is really, if you were to ask me what's the most important statistic of all of those numbers that I bored people with in the last 20 minutes, the 26 playoff teams in the last five years, which is the most in baseball history, which means you can be really lack uh, low funded. You, you don't have any money, but you can come out of the pack and surprise, which gives people a little bit of hope in the spring. Now, and, and in terms of customers, you just need two good seasons to make a little boy love you forever or a little yeah. girl love you forever. And that's all you need. Um, and that's and that, that creates a fan and that creates a return customer. And it takes a lot to break that relationship. That's right. And, and, as, and as a little boy, by the way, I just want you to know, that I sat there with my old scorebook. It's a little bit of a secret, but I'll let everybody know who's listening. And scored physically all seven games of the World Series just to remember what it was like to do that 30 years ago. And I have the scorebook to prove it. Are you proud of me? I'm impressed with that. My, my sister still does that um, for the Mets. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, she, she'll give me pages from, from like, Santana's no-hitter. She gave it to me as a gift. Um, and that's, that's the romance of baseball, right? Yeah, well, and, and nobody in my family cares, so I'm going to have to, you know, in, adopt you, and maybe I'll give that to you as a Christmas present. Is that okay with you? I'll take it, sure. Okay, good. Of sure. course you will. All right, so now, now we'll segue into something that's a little more fun, but it's all related, obviously. Major League Baseball, really significant, but minor league baseball's attendance continues to set records. Over 42 million fans in 2014 and 15, and that's because of Pat O'Connor. We'll talk about him and to him in a few minutes, but minor league baseball between its affiliated dependent and independent um you know they 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 have the ability to reach uh people that uh, major league baseball does not they have 160 markets and the bottom line is that this is something that baseball fans love in let's call it the hinterlands but it's doing very well yeah i mean it's a gateway drug i'm lucky enough to have two minor league teams in very close close to my house i have the cyclones in coney island and the yankees in staten island and uh, my, I baptized my daughter, my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, into the baseball f- world with a Cyclones game. One, because it was only $10 a ticket or $15 a ticket. And it, it's a great family thing, especially in a nation where you have these income inequality gaps. The corporate seats, corporate suites, all that going to the major leagues. It's, minor league baseball is a great family experience. And the merchandise, and for big fans, the, the merchandise becomes a big deal, too. Yeah, and and uh, speaking of the merchandise, I don't know if you knew this, and I don't know if you care, but I am one of the co-founders of the El Paso Chihuahuas. We created that nickname. The Chihuahuas uh, is the Mexican uh, county slash division in Juarez and right across the border, El Paso, a border town. But there is a long history of, of elegance and, and all. And also, I don't know if you knew this, but Chihuahuas are a small dog, so that's uh, you what know, is on the logo. That's... The bottom line <laughs> is you could have fun with minor league baseball nicknames, the Iron Pigs, the Warthogs, the, the Sand Nats. The it Sand Nats, the, the Mud Hens. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a great thing. Um, it, is, it is fun. And I, I, well, I was a sports writer earlier in my career, and all the guys had, like, minor league sports jerseys and minor league baseball caps. And it was kind of like a badge of honor to get the obscure ones or the cool ones. Um, and there were a lot of them out there. And, again, it, does, it has that fun kind of community cult status that major league sports – often uh, doesn't have because of the, the, the pricing around everything to go with it, you know? 
Um, and you know, of course, that I've been trying to buy a Scottsdale Scorpion hat for the past two weeks, would you say? Yeah. Even well, longer because you've been I, bugging me about it as well. Yeah, yeah, I, and 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 they was so, once Tebow got on that team and laid his hands on that the guy who collapsed at the stadium. Once that happened, you couldn't get near those hats. Well, the guy who will give you access to the process, not the hat, is Pat O'Connor. He spent 33 years in pro ball, last 23 in minor league baseball. He succeeded. Mike Moore. He is the president commissioner of all of minor league baseball. He's a great guy. He was reelected for a third term in December 2015. We asked him about Tebow and the Scorpions and why you didn't get a hat. And here he is. Tell us just generally, uh, give us the elevator speech about the non-independent minor league baseball that you uh, run and govern. Yeah, there are two primary aspects, Rick, and, and for your listeners. One is we are the research and development arm for Major League Baseball and that every player that plays in Minor League Baseball is under contract to a Major League organization. And we provide the venue and the environment and the opportunity for those players to get that much-needed training with, you know, to fulfill their aspirations to get uh, to the Major Leagues. Uh, on the fan side and outside the white lines, uh, we're the affordable family entertainment in 160 communities across the United States. We go from the rookie ball all the way to AAA, next steps to big leagues. We provide that uh, community spirit, that community tie, uh, provide great marketing opportunities for local, regional, and national companies. Uh, we are the business of minor league baseball at its core. And uh, we've been doing it since 1901, and the last probably 10 or 15 years uh, has been part of a tremendous run in uh, exposure, acceptance, attendance, and now in brand building. Note the language from Pat, 160 communities. And these are at all levels. Uh, and, and frankly, the excitement that's generated for a uh, single-A short season, from my perspective, in many ways, is as good, if not better, than the excitement at AAA ballparks. It's all relative, but you do a great job across the board. Well, thanks, Rick. And I'll tell you what, uh, I, there are a lot of things that as president and CEO of all minor league baseball I might worry about. Probably the least of all is the the 152 days of the season, that those 160 clubs, uh, their employees, their executives, their owners, and their communities, they're going to get the game part right. You know, the, 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 the entertainment, the affordable family entertainment, the opportunity for communities across this country to go in and for two or three or four hours just exhale and commune and be together in a safe environment. You know, it's a crazy world out there on a lot of fronts right now, and the one thing that I am so very proud of is that we still offer the opportunity for grassroots America to enjoy Americana. Well put. From a business perspective, you could call it best practices. You might even want to call it cat herding. You might want to call it other stuff some other days in your life. But you've got 160 owners, different economic backgrounds, different financial abilities, different investments, different debt structures, different markets. Um, and uh, you know, Rob Manfred will be a great commissioner. Bud Selig was an amazing communicator. But they had one-fifth at most the number of teams you do. So how do you do it? Well, you do it with 16 great league presidents uh, who are like branch managers. You do it with 160 owners or 160 clubs and ownership groups that are committed to, you know, trying to do it right. We have instilled over the last 10 years or so, Rick, the power of one concept, 
and that is is that as one, minor league baseball is much stronger than the collective sum of 160. By preaching that philosophy and, and having it be uh, adhered to and, and bought into by the ball clubs, you know, we've done things like a national licensing program for 160 clubs, uh, an Internet bundling program for 160 clubs, uh, a national marketing and, and commerce and uh, commercial program that's 160 members strong. So I, I think you do it by uh, earning their trust every day. You work hard every day, but you instill in them, you know, the, the ability to go and do what's best for their market. People say, what's your job like? Well, describe your job. My job is to create the environment that allows 160 clubs to excel in their market, to maximize their revenue opportunity, and to increase the greatest enterprise value possible. And when you can do that, you know, I spend less time on bats and balls, balls and, you know, bats and balls, balls and strikes, safe and out, uh, popcorn, hot dogs. I worry about things like Washington and Wall Street that are going to impact the model. Not the, you know, the, the minutiae and the things that are important. I've got people with boots on the grounds taking care of that far better. You know, Rick, there are some days I wake up and I feel really smart. Uh, but I am never smart enough to tell Sacramento what's best for the river cats. I create the environment and let them go figure it out. Uh, same thing in Columbus or Burlington, Iowa, a town of 25,000 people. And you talk about the proportional excitement and value to community. Burlington's a perfect example. So, you know, how you do it is, is you have great people around you, you empower great people to do great things, and then you just make sure that we stay between the lines. You also have a lot of entrepreneurs out of the 160. You'd argue that all 160 have become better entrepreneurs because of you. But as someone who kind of helped get the referendum done for the now El Paso Chihuahuas, who would have thought that that team would be where it is, for example, not just singling them out, but the idea of having a jersey and logos uh, and a team named after a small dog and a Sonoran uh, a desert uh, uh, Mexican region, it, it requires some foresight and, and, some, and some guts. The Iron Pigs, there are a lot of names in minor league baseball where people don't understand what minor league baseball is all about, but they sure buy the merchandise. Well, I'll tell you, Rick, one thing that I have learned over the years is that uh, uh, while I may have a great deal of input and ultimate authority in what names and nicknames and trademarks and logos look like, I have seeded that on to people with a much more creative bone in their body than I have. Uh, if it were up to me, you know, uh, probably 12 of the top 25 wouldn't be in existence because I thought they were ridiculously silly. But I, I will say this in all seriousness, that the creative aspect of this, uh, the, the creative intelligence, the inc- creative genius of, of 160 clubs, it, it's, it's been amazing. And it, credit goes to those people. You know, I, I was much in the same boat as you when the Chihuahuas came out. And Branch Rickey pointed out to me, Pat, that, or Rick, that he says, Pat, it's important that the nickname be the same on both sides of the border. And Chihuahua meets that criteria. And, and he was right. And in, in the case of El Paso, I think you have the perfect storm. Uh, and having done work down there, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the Woody Hunts and the Paul Fosters and the Alejandra Foster, um, who are just so entrenched in that community. And then you bring in the, you know, the creativeness and the hard work of, of a, an Alan Ledford and a, the people who are Brad, or who are running that ball club. 
um, and it's the perfect storm. And it's taken off like wildfire. And, and you know, there are uh, countless stories like that. The iron pigs you mentioned. Uh, the fireflies at a smaller level but just as impactful in Colombia uh, are creating, you know, great value for the community, not only in the, uh, the intangibles and the community spirit, the community pride, and quality of life issues, but we're finding greater and greater interest in our ballpark becoming either a crowning jewel or the catalyst for urban renewal and, and uh, development in, in cities and, and places in cities that we're just kind of stumbling along. So it's, it's been a gratifying thing to watch. And when you put all the pieces together and you work hard, typically good things happen to good people, and that's what we're experiencing. Well, and good things are happening to you, which is a good thing because it's, it's uh, you, you know, well-deserved. Uh, the, the idea of riding the coattails that are unexpected, would you have thought that you would have gotten uh, some uh, unexpected publicity out of Tim Tebow and his de- decision to get back into baseball? How is that all working? Give me a sense of the Arizona Fall League and how the business people are guys are particularly interested in this one uh in the uh the 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 Mets merchandising issues the fact that that minor leaguers usually aren't uh given or having uh, these kind of deals until they get a major league contract on a major league roster this one was a different story so so talk about the Tebow uh, story well I think Tebow is a is a continuation of uh, extremely high profile uh athletes um, who, whose profile was significant before they became baseball players. Um, and, and by that, I mean it probably started, you know, years and years ago. But in, in my era, uh, the Michael Jordan experience uh, was probably the first of this nature. Now, Michael went straight into a minor league situation, and, and, and we had uh, immediate, you know, gains in our business model. The Tebow one's a little different because he has yet to really – "Quote unquote perform in a minor league setting. He's not donned a minor league uniform yet. Everything he's done has been in the Mets uniform. Uh, I, I think that you know the quality of person, the profile, and all that. His deal is a little different than what others would be. His is more akin to uh, Brian Harper, Steven Strasburg, who you know have elevated the need to to deal with these in a little more one-off situation and unique." Uh, in, in unique circumstances. Uh, you know, Tebow is, is good for baseball, regardless of how many jerseys he sells, uh, because he's, you know, highly regarded as a quality young man. But people are now talking about baseball in ways, not necessarily at a time, but in ways that they might otherwise not. So, uh, you know, there, there are obviously uh, major league ramifications because of the Mets logo and what that means from a merchandising standpoint intellectual property licensing standpoint, assuming that Mr. Tebow uh, goes through spring training and starts in the minor leagues, that's when our model would really kick in, and we would anticipate Jordan-like jumps, Strasburg-like jumps, Brian Harper-like jumps uh, in uh, the teams he plays for, the leagues and and the the, the circuits he's in, uh, because he'll drive attendance and he'll drive merchandise. There's no question about that. Got it. Pat O'Connor, tell us a little bit about the business distinctions, uh, and I know it's, it's uh, for a lot of people who don't understand the differences between the independent leagues and what they bring to the table and the affiliated entities, which is your bailiwick and how they relate to the teams. Well, we started off talking about uh, from the player side. All of our players are under contract to Major League Baseball. 
we have a professional baseball agreement, which is the master agreement between major league and minor league baseball uh, that just that just delineates the, the relationship and governs the, the business aspects of our relationship. Uh, independents uh, by name uh, are just that. They don't have that kind of uh, relationship with major – in fact, they have no relationship with Major League Baseball from that perspective. Uh, under our agreement, we agree to adhere to territorial rules and different things like that. Uh, the independents are just outside of that. Now, you know, I, I've often been asked about, you know, my view of independent baseball. And my response, Rick, is all baseball is good as long as it's good baseball. And, you know, that's not a yogiism so much as what I mean is is that we can't be everywhere. Under our agreement with Major League Baseball, under our, you know, the laws of economics and, and just the, the geography of our layout, we can't be all places. And I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to think that we're the only baseball that communities deserve. But as long as the product on the field is good and that enterprise is doing good business in that community, then I think there's a place in this country for independent baseball, and they've proven so. The problem I have is when people think that this is easy to do and they think that they have the perfect plan, the perfect market, the perfect ballpark, and they end up being undercapitalized, undermanaged, uh, mismanaged. We all take that black eye. It's that minor league baseball team that's failed. That comes with the territory. You know, minor league baseball is locked into certain things that independent leagues aren't, and by choice, some owners want to go that route to have that flexibility of making their own rosters and trading players and, and moving and doing whatever they want to do geog- you know, geographically. Uh, so that's the main distinction. But, you know, and if you look at independent baseball in the United States, the vast majority of the owners, the executives, the administrators uh, have roots back to organized or affiliated minor league baseball via the National Association or minor league baseball as we recognize it. I guess the the, the other the kind of next to final question for you is uh, your relationship to major league baseball, uh, good under great under Mud Sealy, all told, uh, my perspective and perception is really good under Rob Manford as well, uh, and the idea of working together with the existing teams. Could it be better? Are you happy with it? There are a lot of people on our international audience that are saying, you know, first, second division soccer, you have relegation. It, it would be interesting, people, we've had uh, shows on relegation, it would be interesting to see if, if, if relegation could work in baseball. Of course, we could never do it. But uh, uh, the, the whole concept of how you relate to uh, the big boys. Talk about that a minute. Well, I, I think that, that our relationship under Bud Selig, um, you know, Bud brought us back from the brink of an uh, unprecedented separation, he and my predecessor, Mike Moore. When Commissioner Selig was in office, he was a huge friend uh, of minor league baseball. Uh, the few years that I served as president under Bud as commissioner, uh, he was very gracious of his time, of his interest. Uh, we, we came to a, an agreement or an understanding that we're on the same side of the same business, and it's, it would be silly for us not to be working collectively and working collaboratively. Uh, the relationship under uh, Rob Manford, Commissioner Manford, has only extended and, in, and increased in the areas that we do it. And, and one of the things is that, you know, for 15 years, Rob served Commissioner Manford. Uh, for 15 years, I served Mike Moore. Uh, Rob and I carried a lot of the same water for our bosses 
so I, I think our understanding and our relationship is probably more conversational than I had with Bud, certainly uh, as close, if not closer. And Rob's lieutenants and, and our staff uh, seem to work very well. I, I'm very pleased. I can tell you, and I tell people all the time, I don't think that there's ever been a better time to be involved in minor league baseball now uh, than there is now, whether it's from a player perspective, a, a, an owner perspective, the relationship with Major League Baseball. I would venture to say that our relationship with Major League Baseball is as integrated and, and good as it's ever been, and that dates back to 1901. And the franchise values continue to increase, which at the end of the day is one of the major tools uh, upon which you're evaluated, no? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Rob Manfred, uh, right before he became commissioner when he was speaking about, you know, Bud's legacy, uh, Commissioner Seeley's legacy, was that very point. And, you know, I, I am reticent to, to take much credit for that. I think the hard work that the clubs have done, but the environment that we've created has accomplished that, Rick, and, and franchise values are at an all-time high. They show no signs of, of rolling back anytime soon. These these franchise values are being supported by the P&Ls. I mean, these, there is not a huge, you know, I used to always look at a franchise that, that there were revenue models and there were different ways to value a club. But there was always a trophy premium because there was only so many of them. And I think over time what's happened is is the real value and the value of these clubs to be supported by the operation, the percentage of total value of, uh, attributable to that has increased, and the trophy, value, the trophy premium value has decreased. Uh, these are solid business operations now. And the quality of people and the people's history that are coming into this business they're not buying these on a lot, and they're not buying them so much with their hearts. So that's been the most gratifying thing about the increase in value. The, the sheer increase is, is, is great. I mean, that, that's enjoyable, that's positive, that's, that's gratifying. But the fact that the people that are paying this money, and it's real money these days, are paying it from a business perspective. I think that speaks volumes about where minor league baseball is at today. Sure it is. And my final question for my friend Pat O'Connor, um, are you having fun doing what you're doing? you got 160 masters, but you seem to be surviving and thriving in this environment. You know, I really am. And, and you know, I, I think that if, you know, if you're one to believe that God had a plan for you, me doing this was part of it. And, and uh, I've taken to it as a, like a duck to water, Rick, for 30-some years now. Uh, I feel very comfortable in my own skin. I feel very comfortable with where we are as an organization in the baseball hierarchy as well as the business world. It's been very gratifying to see, you know, David Wright come on board from MLS and energize the company and take the brand to a new level uh, and create even greater value for the enterprise. So, you know, all told, I'm still having fun. And, you know, I, I think that uh, Mike Moore, my predecessor, ingrained in me that the day, you know, that this stops being fun, you need to stop and look at what you're doing. Because not only are you doing a disservice to yourself, uh, but you're doing a disservice to the game, the owners, and the fans. And I, and I respect all of those elements too much to do that. So, yeah, Rick, I'm still having fun, and, and uh, you know, we'll see where this leads. But we go a click at a time. I've got three years left on my current term, and we'll go from there. Well, and uh, my perspective has been that uh, minor league baseball is uh, is really lucky to have you uh, to continue to lead them to greater things. 
and we'll continue to follow it, and people will learn more and more about the business issues of minor league baseball as we go along. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.